You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black. All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. I'm your host, Bobby Black. For those of you who know me and know my career at High Times, you know that uh, veterans' issues, particularly in relation to medical marijuana, have always been dear to my heart. Um, Many years ago, I wrote a feature um, entitled The Thin Green Line, in which I uh, was first uh, became aware of the fact that veterans who were disabled or suffering from PTSD were being uh, denied their medications by the Veterans Administration because they were also using medical marijuana. Um, since then, I've, I've taken the cause to heart and I've hosted many veterans panels at the High Times uh, Cannabis Cups in the past and uh, continued covering it on the website and in the magazine. Um, and one of the people who has been at the forefront of this fight and who was one of the most helpful people to me when I began writing this feature those years ago, uh, was Michael Krawitz, um, the executive director of Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. And Michael is my guest today. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. It's so, so good to be here with you on the radio. Great. Um, so it's been a few years since we've spoken. We kind of hit it off a little bit back then. We were hanging out. You came to one of the cups, and uh, were you a judge, or were you just there to uh, be part of the festivities that time? I, I think uh, I, I don't remember judging. That probably means I probably did. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's let's talk a little about. Um, there's a lot been going on in the past uh, year or two in regard to veterans and cannabis. Well, let's let's start at the beginning. Back when I first did the story, um, the big problem was pain contracts. There were these pain contracts that the VA was having veterans sign that 
basically made them say that they weren't taking any illegal drugs in order to get access to their prescription drugs. Um, and then, so when veterans were self-medicating with marijuana, they were being denied all their other medications, correct? Yes. I, the main thing I, I, I guess I would emphasize is uh, the work of Dr. Todd Micaria out there in California. Uh, after Prop 215, he, he was kind of a, a main source of information for us for a little while, uh, have, kind of tying together the ancient information from 100 years ago and the and the new information that they were gleaning from all the patients that were coming in under the Proposition 215. And the main thing that he said he was seeing were painful conditions, people suffering from some sort of pain, uh, painful conditions that uh, cannabis was helping in, in the treatment of. And the second thing was that he saw a good many of them using cannabis together with some prescription drug. Um, so, you know, going from that fact that, you know, that most people were going to be using cannabis for pain and that most of them were going to continue using some treatment from the doctor, some prescription medicine together with the cannabis, I saw that kind of like two freight trains that were eventually going to collide because the doctors that, that are out there prescribing controlled medications do so at the, uh, you know, at, at the, uh, with the permission of the DEA and, and the DEA license is the, is the single thing that allows them to pull out that prescription pad and, and prescribe you some controlled medication. Uh, the DEA has been our number one opponent with medical marijuana. I don't need to tell you. <laughs> so uh, it really was, I think, a, kind of a, a smart place to, to stake out turf. And it turned out to be a, a, an important place uh, to work in that it led to the VA coming out with a medical marijuana policy that was directly as a result of bringing to their attention the fact that veterans were using cannabis, they were using it under state law, under doctor's orders, uh, and, and then they were coming back to the VA and using other medications. And facing that fact, they had to do something. Right, and that's you, you were you were leading that fight back when I first interviewed you and did that story. You were trying to get the VA to you know acknowledge this and and change their policy. How much has changed since then? Uh, and I don't remember what year it was. Was it like two thousand eight or ten? I want to say maybe two thousand ten. Right. Uh, what it, 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 the, that span is exactly uh, the time period when this uh, VA medical marijuana policy was created was uh, kind of from the two thousand eight time period to 2010 and when it was actually released in 2010 and then it was updated in 2011 and it was just allowed to expire in January. Um, interesting thing about that is, is we found out at the time of, of expiration we did some digging and asked some VA officials about these uh, directives because there hadn't been one to replace it. They said that the expired directive doesn't go away, that the policy that is set in motion stays forever until another directive comes and, and actively uh, changes that policy or, or in some way uh, rolls it back uh, or extends it. So, yeah, we're, we're facing uh, the VA policy sort of uh, stuck in a, time, in, a, in a time capsule. And what we've done recently is we worked with Congress. Uh, the U.S. Congress, uh, led by uh, Congressman Blumenauer out there in o Oregon, uh, has been fighting a fight for us called the Veterans Equal Access Amendment. And what that would do is it would actually change VA policy uh, through Congress, a congressional action to change VA policy to allow the VA doctors to recommend cannabis, to allow them to fill out the forms 
so that a veteran could participate in a state medical marijuana program. That's always been the, the one sticking point in that VA medical marijuana policy that we did get put in 2010. While it, it provided some guidance and, and some protection for veterans using medical marijuana and then coming to the VA and continuing their treatment, uh, it also made it very clear that the VA doctor was not permitted to recommend cannabis. Uh, that's something that is a legal issue between the VA and the DEA, and we've been trying to get Congress to intervene with great success. And now the U.S. Senate has gotten involved with the CARES Act, uh, and the CARES Act has that provision also for, for veterans equal access. And uh, we recently had a letter drafted that uh, 20 or 30 uh, U.S. senators and congressmen and women uh, sent a letter to the VA basically telling them to get with the 21st century, that you know, since 2010 we've had great experience with cannabis out in the field, and the VA medical marijuana policy should reflect this. Uh, as I understand it, the VA is coming back and telling them we'll change the law. <laughs> so it's an interesting dialogue, to say the least. Yeah, and I saw uh, articles online of you uh, standing next to uh, Senator Kristen Gillibrand of New York, who has been one of the, uh, I guess, one of the main proponents of the CARES Act and uh, and veteran ref- uh, VA reform and, and veteran health care reform. I know that Cory Booker is also was involved in the CARES Act as well as Rand Paul. Um, so what's uh, what, what is that the directive that you talk about that expired? What exactly did that say, or that it's about to expire? What exactly did that directive say, and is that the current policy as of now? Yeah, it is the current policy. As I said, that since they didn't come out with any replacing uh, directive, no uh, superseding directive, uh, as that directive expired, it just set itself in stone, so to speak. And what it said, it's three-part. One part, it makes very clear that the VA is federal property and that on federal property, even if you're using medical marijuana legal under state law, the VA can't protect you from arrest. That, you know, if you were to uh, somehow become in, in contact with the federal police on federal property, they, they still uh, could and would likely cite you for possession of marijuana. Um, that's an interesting one because we did have a veteran out in California that they dragged before a federal judge, and the federal judge threw the whole thing out. So I really wonder uh, if it's just a simple possession on VA grounds, if it would ever really go anywhere. You know, But, but that's one part of it. And then another part is uh, what I was talking about before, about the VA telling doctors that they're not allowed to recommend cannabis. Uh, and then the third part was uh, the, the part that we – you know, basically called the medical marijuana policy, and it just makes very clear that veterans are using medical marijuana under state law, that the VA doctor should treat that like any other medical uh, uh, decision, uh, even if it is uh, somehow seemingly uh, counter, you know, counter to the to the program that they're in. You know, even if it's a drug abuse treatment at the VA, they're not supposed to treat you any differently because you're using medical marijuana. Uh, only to look at the uh, medical interactions, if there's some drug-to-drug medical interaction or some uh, medical warning that that could be uh, applied, that's what they should be looking at. But no legal issue strictly because you're using medical marijuana uh, under the state law. Right. And, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic because most of the vast majority of the veterans that I've spoken with about this claim that 
after beginning to use medical marijuana, they've been able to wean themselves off of so many of the other medications. Uh, they talk about how they're prescribed this giant cocktail of antipsychotics and opioids and all these other medications that basically turn them into a zombie and, and don't really help them. And then they start smoking or vaping or ingesting cannabis, and they're able to get off the opioids because the cannabis helps with the pain. And, and there's also been a great deal of medical re research now, which I'm, I'm guessing the VA probably doesn't recognize, that says it's, been, it's extremely effective in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, I, I think the that's two two separate issues but the, the first one you know when it comes to uh you know cannabis saving lives out there uh, as a result of less overdose that that one you know kind of the cat's out of the bag i mean that was released in a jama uh, article uh and it was done by va researchers that that article um so you know that they really do see that and that's been a, a very clear pattern that we saw all the way back to dr micaria again where the very first patients came in and told us, hey, if I use medical marijuana, I don't need to use as many of these pills. And that's just been incredibly consistent. And, and I, I tell people, you know, it's not the first pill that they don't take. It's the last pill that they don't need. And it's the last pill that's going to wind up overdosing, not the first pill. And, and you know, if you can get people to not take that last pill <laughs> across the board, uh, make such a profound change in, in uh, overdose rates. But also we start getting into suicide rates as well. And, and we're not really clear on this. You know, the, the science is pretty clear on pain. We've got lots of double-blind placebo-based studies. On suicide rate, we've got a little bit of statistical evidence that shows that suicide rates drop around uh, implementation of medical marijuana laws. But we have black box warnings, suicide warnings, on the drugs that they give vets for post-traumatic stress. These drugs given to the wrong age patient can almost guarantee suicide, uh, suicidal thoughts and, and tendencies in that patient. It, it, it causes them. It's a, a suicide warning. It, it just, I, can't, I can't even get my brain around that, that you would give a, a patient uh, a, a medicine that could very well promote the very thing that you're trying to prevent. Uh, but anyway, that's where we're at. And, and again, if you're going to prevent the use of some of those pills across the board, and some of those pills are actually causing an incre incre increased rate of suicide, that's where we come in. And then that's where we butt heads with the psychiatric community. And that's where that, that other question about post-traumatic stress comes in. The VA knows that, you know, veterans are using marijuana uh, that suffer from post-traumatic stress. They know this very well. But they're looking at it through a lens of abuse. So they're looking at it through the eyes of the psychiatrist who's saying, yes, this is a, a person, a veteran, they're suffering from post-traumatic stress and uh you know, together with their symptoms, they're often very likely to suffer from substance abuse. And in fact, we see many, many veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress that also uh, uh, abuse the substance cannabis. And interestingly, we found recently that um, the abuse of cannabis seems to correlate with some less symptoms, some better symptomatic response uh, in the uh, post-traumatic stress sufferers. But still, they're not going to call it medicine, mind you. But they're <laughs> grudgingly accepting that the abuse of cannabis comes along with it some uh, positive attributes. It's hard to get your brain around. But that's where the psychiatric community comes in. And the VA, I think, you know, is on the same page with the psychiatric community. The psychiatric uh, uh, doctors uh, work, you know, directly with the federal government, the DEA, hand-in-hand. Hand, and they work with the courts, and they get all the people that are suffering from abuse that, that – uh, get 
court-mandated, quote-unquote, treatment, uh, that's where they go. So it's all kind of locked in, I think, at this point. And, you know, the VA is going to really need some compelling evidence, uh, like Dr. Sue Sisley's research that in the, in the subject line says, you know, cannabis for post-traumatic stress. But those of us that have been looking at this for a while and have studied things like the endogenous cannabinoid receptor system, have studied some of the work of Dr. Meshulam and his team in Israel. We know a lot about why cannabis works for post-traumatic stress. If you've got memories that are waking you up as nightmares in the middle of the night, we know, we, we have good hard science that shows us how those memories can be staved off through the use of cannabis. But it's got to be good cannabis. You know, it, it, the thing is, you don't just go on a street in, in uh, you know, Idaho uh, or in uh, you know Iowa or, or New Jersey or wherever, and, and get marijuana off the street uh, and use that and say you're using medical marijuana. It's a, in many cases, it doesn't even compare. It's random. It's just absolute luck whether you get something that would be of any value on the street. When you're faced with 80-something choices in a fine uh, apothecary-style dispensary or provisioner of cannabis for medicine, and you've got all these different extracts and edibles and, and uh, you know, different types of, of cannabis uh, whole products to choose from, that's where you start seeing the real benefit. And I've got, I've got friends that have been suffering with medical conditions for their whole life that are, you know, middle-aged like me. They're just now finding a cannabis product that really seems to really lock in for them, where they, they, they just now realize how clumsy they've been trying to treat it in the past. Wow. Yeah, I know... Uh, um... A uh, friend of mine, Dr. Daryl Hudson, up in Canada, has been studying uh, which strains specifically are best for PTSD and kind of trying to narrow that down and, and breed for that. Um, and you, know, you were talking about the suicide rates of vets and how uh, pot has helped reduce that. Um, I just want to let our listeners know, for those that don't, um, the sad statistic that I think it's believed it's around 21 or 22 veterans on average a day commit suicide. Is that is that still accurate, Michael? That's, that's actually what you would have to call the low number, and it's the VA's own statistic. The Veterans Affairs uh, Department puts out a statistic for the number of veterans that take their own life each day, and it's 22 per day. Um, we work with a, a researcher, uh, a nurse practitioner named Brian Crum down in New Mexico, and he's got about a 1,000 uh, veteran patients that he works with that suffer from post-traumatic stress and a couple of 1,000 patients total you know, that he works with. Uh, and and uh, yeah, he's telling us from his research that there's closer to 100 suicides per day in the United States, Gosh. veterans and non-veterans alike, that could be attributed to, in one way or another, uh, under-treated or poorly treated post-traumatic stress. And uh, that, that's, that's just really uh, unimaginable numbers. And if we, can, if we can, you know, allow cannabis to be better accessed by, by those patients... Uh, across the board and, and lower that suicide rate. I mean, that's just such a, a compelling thing. I, I think, you know, we, we've, we've seen really dramatic uh, effect with cannabis with little tiny children that are suffering from uh, brain tumors and little tiny children that are suffering from seizure disorders and, and things with these new CBD extracts that, that we've got. Um, but there's a situation where, you know, you've got a, a small child that's suffering from, let's say, an epileptic fit, and you give the child a medication and they don't, they don't have the epileptic fit anymore. It, it, it helps to alleviate that. It's very obvious. You can see that. 
But when I'm telling you that you could give cannabis to this population of veterans and lower that suicide rate, it's a much more abstract concept. And I, I think if it wasn't such an abstract con- concept, I think there would be, you know, huge outrage to get this done. But I think people, you know, will uh, try to come up with other ways to, to you know, explain these suicides in their mind. Um, and and, and I, I can tell you that um, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing um, dealing with your day-to-day symptoms of your <laughs> remembrance of, of war and your, your duty to your country, your service, uh, souvenirs that you've brought home, you know, pins and plates and, and uh, the pain that, that's associated with that. And, you know, cannabis is just one thing that can help. Um, we, we tried our best to get the VA to work together with us, and, and we, we do our best to, to try to get the, a situation across the board where veterans feel comfortable going into the VA and getting care and coming out and, and, and you know, appending to that care what we can uh, provide with the cannabis products that are available outside the VA. And uh, right now, that's the best outcome. Maybe in the future, we'll get this all sewn together better and we'll be able to have the cannabis products delivered right from the VA pharmacy. Um, and, you know, bring in much more love and, and expertise from the community into the VA uh, because, as we've seen on the TV, they need it. Right on. Uh, well, we need to take a short break, um, so just uh, stick around. We'll be right back with a little bit more with Michael Krawitz. Stay tuned. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering. Okay, and we're back uh, here with Michael Krawitz, the Executive Director of Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. We're discussing the uh, positive effect of cannabis on in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. And we were just saying that, uh, you know, it, it amazes me. Any perceived negative effects of cannabis pale in comparison to someone taking their own life. I mean, what what possible justification could there be saying, oh, we don't want you to use weed because it's it's dangerous and it's addictive, but look, look what look what the people. alternative is. Yeah, it, it's it's baffling. And, you know, compare and contrast. Okay, I'm a disabled vet myself. I suffer from pain, and I've seen a lot of experts in various countries. And I've got a doctor in the Netherlands 
that would say, oh, use cannabis. Absolutely, if you can you know, not use those pain pills, use the cannabis and prescribe me the cannabis and I got it at the pharmacy. I go to the VA in the United States or any of the doctors in the United States and they're exactly the opposite. We can write you all these different pills. Just please stay away from the cannabis. It causes me so many headaches. Here, take the pills. You know, one of them has to be wrong, right? <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, we, we are in a unique position to kind of heal a problem that was caused inadvertently. You know, uh, when you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, most of us agree that the D doesn't belong. It's not a disorder. And why do we say that? Because we've studied this cannabinoid receptor system and how cannabis works in treating post-traumatic stress. And in doing so, we've learned vicariously a lot about the human body and how we process memory, how we process pain. Uh, the, and, and what it's taught us is that when you are using cannabis, you are actually uh, fixing a real, like, physical damage that's been done due to a trauma that wasn't a physical trauma. Post-traumatic stress, you know, if you're, let's say you're in a Humvee in Iraq and the Humvee gets blown up by a, by a bomb and you're one of the survivors, uh, it's a good chance that you'll have post-traumatic stress. There's also a very good chance that you're going to have all kinds of pain issues, uh, and, and other issues as well. It, it comes as a package. And, uh, you know, what, we, what we've seen is that uh, the post-traumatic stress disorder previously was called shell shock. And if you call it shell shock, it sure makes sense for someone who was, you know, in that Humvee. But it doesn't make sense for, let's say, a, a woman who was sexually assaulted by her, her spouse. Uh, that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Post-traumatic stress disorder actually makes a lot more sense for that case. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think, and all the veterans that I've met uh, believe that, you know, this is about all patients. This isn't about veterans. If there's something that we can do as veterans to pave the way for treatment, that treatment is for all patients that suffer from this. And most of the vets that I've met with that suffer from post-traumatic stress acknowledge that the veteran population, while they may be more likely to suffer from these conditions than the general public, uh, they don't represent the biggest number of post-traumatic stress patients out there. And uh, I think that it's really important to recognize that this isn't a failing, a personal failing, or something that you can be, you know, emotionally talked out of with, with uh, uh, you know, conventional kind of uh, psychological treatments, like psychiatric treatments. They don't work. The point, point in case is uh, the Valium. You know, Valium it seems to be something that's often prescribed for anxiety, but the anxiety associated with post-traumatic stress, the readings that we've read from the Army Surgeon General tells us that you do not want to use that same uh, Valium for someone who's suffering from post-traumatic stress anxiety. Well, to my layman's ears, that tells me there must be something substantially different about the anxiety with post-traumatic stress than the anxiety that you would normally suffer from a, uh, a, a you know, typical... Uh, psychiatric disorder. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. You mentioned uh, in passing that uh, you yourself are, of course, um, someone who has been disabled through uh, through your service in the military. Tell us a little about your background. Uh, what was your service uh, history? And, and, and tell us a little about how you became injured. Yeah, I was in the Air Force, uh, United States Air Force. I was serving in Guam, USA. I was an electronic technician 
you'll love this uh, title. I was an electronic warfare systems technician, <laughs> which was a, a very uh, interesting job, actually, where we worked on uh, confusing the ground radar to make it look like the airplane was actually going at a different speed or a different altitude to support our planes getting to their location without getting you know, blown out of the sky. Uh, it was kind of a supportive role, I guess you would call it, in the bombing of of uh, of uh, <laughs> goes on in, in war. And uh, I I fell you know to a poorly constructed roadway. I was just driving home from dinner. We had actually had kind of a celebratory dinner because it was my last Friday night on Guam. I went off to the Hilton, talked my buddy into letting me ride his brand new bike home. And uh, because I was on his brand new bike, I was taking it easy in the right hand lane, which was my undoing. Because that right-hand lane ended with no warning, and just uh, just went over the handlebars of the bike, and you know broke myself up really good. And from that point on, you know, I had this kind of career path, and it, within a split second, I had uh, a completely different life trajectory where I went through all these different surgeries. I think to date, I'm up to like 14 different surgeries I've had. And yeah. I had an artificial hip put in, and I lost my spleen. I, I was pretty messed up. And I, I learned through trial and error about all these medications and treatments at the VA, you got to realize now, you know, I'm just old enough that this was before Proposition 215, before common knowledge, acceptance of, of medical cannabis. And I, I basically had to learn about it on my own, um, which I did through traveling abroad. Like I said, that doctor in the Netherlands I, I told you about who wrote me the prescription really opened my eyes, and, and uh, I started looking at it very differently and trying these different products, and, and it worked. And cannabis really works really well. As, as you know, and I, I just think it was really um, that that I had to discover it on my own that really caused me to do what I did, which was do a little bit of research. You know, landing the you know in uh, Dr. McCaria's classroom and and looking at some of this history, I found out that a patient like me a hundred years ago didn't have to go through this trial and error of all these horrible drugs before they came about cannabis a hundred years ago with a you know, combination of internal injuries and, and, and broken bones that I had, they would have automatically almost put cannabis on the top of the list as uh, one of the first-line drugs to use, not one of the last-line drugs to use. And that's sure. really driven my efforts all, all along here to get access to cannabis for other vets and, and for other patients. Is, you know, that realization that this isn't some new idea that, you know, Cheech and Chong came up with in the 70s. It's um, <laughs> actually an old idea that Cheech and Chong helped to uh, bring some light on in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> and is that how you got involved with the VMCA? Did you help found the, the VMCA? Or did or tell me a little about the history of the organization. Yeah, well, the Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access or Veterans for Medical Marijuana Access, we actually still use both titles interchangeably uh, depending on the venue. Um, and that's an interesting discussion in and of itself, the <laughs> marijuana versus cannabis discussion, which I'm sure you've had and will continue to have in the future. Uh, but uh, Veterans for Medical Marijuana Access was founded in 2007 by Martin Chilcutt. And Marty Chilcutt, a, a veteran uh, a little bit older than me from the previous generation, he uh, actually was exposed to radiation and, and had all the fallout from that uh, in his military career. And he actually was in Colorado years before and saw what had happened in California with Prop 215 and communicated with uh, Ethan Nadelman and those guys with Drug Policy, uh, I guess that was Drug Policy Foundation, I guess at the time, now it's Drug Policy Alliance, uh, his interest in, in trying to lay the groundwork to get a law passed there. And he was actually instrumental in getting Amendment 20 
the medical marijuana law in Colorado. Um, and that's why you have an amendment to the Constitution in Colorado where it was a little different everywhere else is because uh, Marty you know, went to the, the books and, and did it the way he thought he wanted to do it, not the way it had been done previously. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, after leaving there, he went to uh, Michigan, and he started looking at doing a, a state law in Michigan, uh, which now, of course, is history, you know, is that was a successful effort. Well, he started that effort, and uh, Marijuana Policy Project came in and wanted to work on that and made him a deal. You know, we'll, we'll give you some money, do this veteran stuff that you like to do so much, uh, and give us the initiative. And, and Marty took the deal and set up uh, Veterans for Medical Marijuana Access with the intention of getting like veteran service organizations on board on a resolution. I think that was the main pr- purpose of that, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning. And he brought me in on, on that to work on that. Uh, that didn't work out too well because we didn't have a VA medical marijuana policy yet, and we didn't have any real dialogue. In, in the VA, before 2010, if you mentioned the word marijuana, most, if not all, VA administrators would just look at you coldly and say, we're a federal entity. That's marijuana is illegal. We can't talk about that. And that was literally the end of the discussion in so many of these cases. So uh, he, he moved on, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, that's when I kind of took over leadership and, and started working on uh, working with the VA itself and working on VA policy. And his work combined with mine uh, is what laid the groundwork for uh, the VA medical marijuana policy. Great, great. So obviously you guys work with trying to uh, persuade the VA and work with trying to persuade uh, federal legislators to uh, see reason. Um, do you guys also work on a state level uh, trying to maybe help get uh, like states with medical marijuana to include PTSD in their roster of conditions? Do you guys do that kind of work as well? Yes, actually. That's, of course, uh, that's, that's what we do. The, the reason being because you know, if we're working at the VA, and the VA has essentially handed this off to the states by saying that they can't handle it. It's a federal entity. Uh, only state-level doctors can recommend it. Well, then we have to work with state-level doctors, don't we, and make sure that the conditions that veterans are likely to suffer from are covered by these state laws. And we, we would work on uh, a lot of issues like cancer and pain if it actually was necessary. But most state laws uh, carry those, those conditions, uh, uh, you know, for uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, uh, seizure disorders, uh, cancer treatment, stuff like that. So it winds up being, you know, chronic pain occasionally is a battleground for us, but mostly it's been post-traumatic stress. And we've actually taken this on for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you know, because it's the right thing to do and the science uh, supports it. By the way, you know, we, I talked earlier about how you have to do this huge study of the cannabinoid receptor system uh, to really understand what we know about uh, post-traumatic stress in cannabis. But there is a shortcut. There is one drug that was tested. It's one of these synthetic uh, petroleum oil-based copies of THC called Sesamet. And they tested it up in Canada and found in a double-blind placebo-based study that it worked for what they called nightmare cessation of post-traumatic stress. So it's not just you know, our anecdotes that tell you that it would work for post-traumatic stress. Here's the quote-unquote active ingredient in marijuana uh, being proven in a double-blind placebo-based study to work for post-traumatic stress. So we have the science on our side, and, and we know from the vets that it works. Uh, more than that, this, this stigma of it being associated with psychiatric disorders um, and, and, you know, the, the notion that somehow you're broken or something like that if you need help uh, in treatment, that's 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 not good. That's that's something we don't tolerate. And the, our efforts in the states has mostly been to undo that. And I, I'm really proud. I think that we've actually had some impact there on the national debate. 
to make uh, people feel more comfortable going in and seeking treatment for post-traumatic stress. We're looking at the numbers, and we're working on this very slowly and carefully, trying not to upset the apple cart, making sure that we listen to the psychiatrists who we respect, even though we disagree with. And uh, now we're fighting, I guess, four battlegrounds. We've, we've added, we've got about half of the states that have medical marijuana, you know, the modern California Prop 215 style uh, medical marijuana laws, but half of them have post-traumatic stress as a qualifying condition now. Uh, we started with just New Mexico. And uh, our battlegrounds are uh, Illinois, um, Colorado, believe it or not. I mean, it's just amazing that we're still fighting yeah. that post-traumatic stress as a qualifying condition in Colorado, even after we've legalized it for adult use. Um, and New Jersey and uh, New York. And up there in uh, Montana, we, we've been fighting an effort there as well, somewhat of a more difficult effort even than the others. Uh, but those are our four battlegrounds, five battlegrounds right now, and uh, we're just press on. We don't quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, Michael, I sincerely applaud all of your hard work and efforts, and you are making a difference and saving lives. Thank you for that. Are there any websites out there that people who are interested should check out or petitions that, that they should sign? The easiest place to find us is just go to Facebook, uh, Facebook slash USA.VMCA, as in Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access, VMCA. And uh, you can check that out. You go through there to the website. We've we got a lot of media work that, that uh, we do, so you can follow a lot of what we're doing on, you know, in, the, in the popular press. One thing that Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access has taken on has been working at the United Nations, and we've got a drug summit coming up in April uh, that's, that's going to prove very interesting for cannabis and cannabis policy worldwide, especially in the United States where we're you know legalizing cannabis for the first time. I don't need to remind you that. So uh, it's all it's all fascinating stuff, and veterans, you know, are able to uh, have a have a role and a, a voice, and and we're we're doing it. Well, uh, keep up the good fight. I wish you a lot of luck, and uh, thanks for joining us today, Michael. Really appreciate it. All right, anytime. I right, take care. Bye bye. All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in and hooking up with us. Please check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazingwithbb. Give us a like, leave us some feedback. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Bobby Black and Facebook and Instagram at Bobby Black 420 And please leave us some reviews on iTunes as well. We'd really appreciate it. Join us again next week when our guests will be Kelly Dodds and Jack Rickus of the Cannabis Film Festival. Until then, this is Bobby Black saying, blaze on, brothers and sisters.